If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew chapter six. We're going to look at a message entitled Treasures of the Heart Seeking True Wealth. Seeking True Wealth. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. So I shared with you before, there are so many men that have written so much on the Sermon on the Mount and all these passages, and I want to acknowledge the contributions of men like James McDonald, or Martin Lloyd-Jones, you've heard me acknowledge him before, or Randy Alcorn, maybe a name you've not heard me mention before, and, and John Stott, and there are so many others. We're going to start off this morning by reading the text, so in honor of that, would you please stand? Jesus speaking says, Do not lay it for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay it for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The reading of God's word will be blessed. Please be seated. Most of us are here aware of the sinking of the Titanic, great ocean liner sunk in April of 1912, great loss of life and, and there's a motion picture I'm not recommending, but I remember seeing the people flailing about in the water, holding on to whatever kind of debris they might be able to use to stay afloat. And, and the screams, I remember the darkness and the screams that the, that the pictures were portraying. And, and I can just imagine those people wondering, how much longer can I do this? How much longer can I tread water? How much longer can I stand this cold? I mean, it's hopeless and help is hundreds of miles away. Now, I suppose there's a preacher there among those who wants to get in one last sermon. And as he fights to keep his head above water to, far enough to preach that last sermon, he begins his message with, I want to share with you a few words today about the nature of water. Can, can you imagine the reaction that he would have gotten? Someone might have said, we're all drowning here, and the best you can do is describe the water? Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's kind of how I feel describing the all-pervasive problem of materialism. Our nation is drowning in a sea of covetousness, the sea of got to have it right now. And you're thinking, thank you, Captain Obvious. And you're right. When we look up, Materialism in a dictionary is defined as a doctrine where the highest values or objectives lie in material well-being and in the furtherance of material progress. In other words, it's a value system where buying and spending and accumulating is the most important thing in life. Now, hard to hear that definition and, and, and not say, okay, when you put it like that, materialism's definitely wrong. But then we look at the lives of our people, believers included. And, man, we like to buy stuff. Why? Because those things make us happy and they give us a level of comfort or, or control, perhaps, or bring admiration for, from others. And those are powerful feelings. But they can also be very toxic 
because we can all too easily begin entrusting ourselves to those things and they become the focus of our lives which is a role reserved for our father alone and that's where we see that the church has been affected cj mahaney says and i believe he's on to something that the greatest challenge facing american evangelicals is not persecution by the world but seduction by the world we see this borne out and the attraction so many have to the prosperity gospel movement, which is no gospel at all, by the way. We don't have to look very hard to see the evidence of the worship of wealth in our culture. And the irony is, we know this, the irony is that with more money often comes more problems. Americans today, compared with Americans 50 years ago, have twice as many cars and go out to eat twice as often. But we don't seem to be any happier because of it. Rather than raising levels of satisfaction and well-being, we've seen record levels of debt and dissatisfaction. The average American, this is children and adults, holds a debt of almost $100,000 a person. While at the same time we see self-storage facilities proliferate to provide places we can house all those things we just had to have that created the debt in the first place. Writer Matt Walsh, casts a hard light, harsh light on what this shopping frenzy says about our culture. He says, that's our entire economic system. Buy things. Everybody buy. Doesn't matter what you buy, just buy. Doesn't matter if you don't have money, just buy. Our entire civilization now rests on the assumption that no matter what else happens, we will all continue to buy lots and lots of things. Buy, 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 buy. And then buy a little more. Don't create or produce or discover, just buy. Never save, never invest, never cut back, just buy. Buy what you don't need with money you don't have. Buy like you breathe, only more frequently. <laughs> and we could go on and on about our culture's fascination with money and possession, but here's the bottom line. You don't have to tell a man drowning in the ocean that he has a water problem. And you don't have to tell folks who are drowning in a sea of materialism and greed that they have a problem with materialism and greed. And yet there's this intriguing paradox in, in that it doesn't feel like a water problem. That's because materialism doesn't. It cannot ever satisfy. It Rather, it leaves us feeling dry and thirsty like a desert, always wanting more stuff. And it's no wonder because Scripture makes it plain that God is not pleased. And certainly He's not glorified with this attitude of covetousness that drives us to gain more and more wealth and more and more possessions. And we see in our text, Jesus tells us plainly, no one can serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and money. You can't have it both ways, Jesus says. Now listen, don't go away from here this morning saying, the preacher said money's a bad thing. Money in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's an absolutely necess necessary part of life. Paul told Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. To which he then added this warning, it is through this craving, this love of money, that some have wandered away from the truth and pierced themselves with many pangs. He also told Timothy that if a man did not provide for his family, he had denied his faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Some of them might say, well, see, preacher, we need money. And if you knew my family, you know we need lots of it. And yes, taking care of your family does require us to make money. They can also put us in a dangerous position where it's difficult to know when enough is enough. 
And to that danger, Paul addressed these words to Timothy and to us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, now hear the echo of Christ's teaching here, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's easy to understand. So many think that having more money is going to make us more happier, but we soon learn that it will not. James McDonald reminds us that more of anything other than God will never feel that longing for fulfillment He has placed within you and me. The truth is that materialism and covetousness have a powerful stronghold on people, even believers. In fact, we're not only in bondage often to materialism and the covetous attitude it fuels, often we're in very serious denial about it. In our culture, this influence of greed and materialism and selfishness has become so pervasive that we hardly recognize it anymore. This deadly mix has been described as wanting the wrong things or wanting the right things for the wrong reasons or at the wrong time or in the wrong amount. So, beloved, let me ask you, what is it that captivates you? What is it that captivates you? And what eternal value does it really have? At the heart of covetousness and materialism is a rejection of God's sufficiency. That's really the bottom line. And it's the reason God hates covetousness. In effect, what folks are doing is disrespecting God, mocking God, saying, it's not enough, God, nice try, but it's not enough. I have needs and you're not taking care of them. You promise to be all that I need, but you're just not meeting my expectations. And the question is, will we be grateful and satisfied with God's provision for us, or will we covet more and better and different? One problem you see is not so much that we don't want God, it's that we want God and. We, we covet God and the perfect spouse. God and an impressive career. God and the house on the lake. God and an exotic vacation and the big bonus and whatever captures your imagination next. God and, and you fill in the blank. What will it take, beloved, for us to come to that place of contentment where the consuming passion of our lives is, God, I just want you. I just want your joy and your peace and your fullness and your friendship, and that's enough for me. That's enough. So I want to challenge you this morning, church family, to open your heart as wide as you know how. Be willing to submit yourself to God's Word as we move a little deeper into this study. And I want you to consider, to consider that in your desire for greater joy and fulfillment in life, you've been frustrated because of your attitude toward money and possessions. Let's examine God's Word together and let Him deal with us as He wills. He says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where, moth, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
So when Jesus urges us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, he's making here a very interesting word play that we see in the original language. Lay up translates the Greek word thesaridzo. Treasures translates the Greek word thesaros. And these two words come from a common term from which we get our English word thesaurus. So a thesaurus, is, you might say, is a treasury of words. So we might translate this phrase, do not treasure up treasures for yourself on earth. The problem that Jesus brings to our attention here comes about when we're consumed by the treasuring of earthly treasures. And again, the reason so many spend their lives in this endeavor is because they're not satisfied with what God has already given them, and they have this consuming desire for more. Material things grab our attention and, and garner our affection. So, so many folks believe if they could just accrue enough stuff, they'll be satisfied. But Jesus knew that wouldn't work. He knew that wealth never satisfies, so He admonishes us not to store up earthly treasures in this life. He, he wanted to communicate to us that these material treasures, these possessions we think we just have to have, are only temporary. He's warning us here, Jesus is. There we can see everything we so highly value taken from us in an instant. Think about the victims of the recent wildfire in Lahaina on the islands of Maui. They went to bed on August the 7th with their homes and their businesses and all their possessions intact. And before the end of the next day, August the 8th, they'd lost everything just that quickly, literally, quite literally, here today and gone tomorrow. At this point, 114 victims dead, 100 still missing. They haven't finished searching the 2,200 homes and, and businesses that were destroyed, another 800 or so damaged, not to mention their possessions, clothing and furnishings and vehicles, and then the livelihoods of most of the survivors, all gone in a matter of minutes Estimates vary, but it looks like the financial cost of the fires will fall between $3.2 and $7 billion. An all-too-real and stark reminder that all we know and have can be gone just like that. In Jesus' day, the rich were marked by their fine attire, and the very finest garments were made of wool. Sometimes those fine woolen garments would be interwoven with gold thread. Now, I'm not talking about gold-colored thread, but real gold. So when Jesus was talking about the moth, all those listening would have known that moths love to eat fine woolen clothing. So most of these affluent folks had to really struggle to obtain this fine clothing, and then they have to work about just as hard to look after it. Another mark of Jesus' day was a full barn. That word translated rust here in verse 19 is rendered differently everywhere else it's used in the New Testament. What it literally means is an act of eating. Now when you think about it, that works here, doesn't it? It communicates the fact that rats and mice and worms and insects could and often did devour storehouses of grain. Of course, any treasure could be stolen. Thieves have always been able to break in and steal. Jesus tells us here that the amassing of material possessions in this life is that they simply will not last, be it rust, rot, rust, rot or robbery. And they're a constant concern to us. We, we can spread our lives way too thin, acquiring them, maintaining them, 
and protecting them. But then Jesus tells us we have another option, and that's to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. You see, if we invest in eternity, we invest where there's full protection. If our treasures are stored up in heaven, they will never be consumed. They'll never be stolen. These treasures in heaven include the rewards that await the believer who serves the Lord faithfully in this world. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 10. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Jesus speaks of a reward for those who are persecuted. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. We might view those crowns mentioned in Scripture as rewards. Paul best defines how they are awarded, rewarded in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, when he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That perishable wreath awarded to the victor looked beautiful when he got it, or she got it, but it was soon turned brittle and disintegrate. Not so the heavenly wreath. It remains forever. Now clearly this is analogous to what Jesus was saying about moths and rust destroying earthly treasures. And then Jesus says that he will bring rewards with him when he returns to repay each one for what he has done. We read that in Revelation chapter 22 verse 12. Brother, clearly we are to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ most of all. When Jesus is our treasure, we will commit our resources, our money, our time, our talents to, to His work in this world. Our motivation for what we, what we do will be to glorify Him in everything we say, do, and think. Paul encourages us as a servants of God by reminding us that there's an eternal reward for those who are rightly motivated to serve Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily with all your heart. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, laying up treasure in heaven involves living sacrificially for the sake of Christ, serving Him by caring for His body, that is, the church. That's fundamental to accruing heavenly treasure, the worth of which will be incalculable. It'll symbolize the depth of our connection with God. And in the heavenly treasure we lay up will certainly bring us wondrous joy and peace as we reflect upon all He has done within us and through us and for us, but more importantly, it will bring glory to God. The inheritance Paul mentioned in that verse from Colossians is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, being kept in heaven for us. And that promised inheritance, beloved, ought to give us hope. It ought to give us strength as we remember and understand the value of the treasured inheritance that awaits us has, that it's being kept in heaven for us, that ought to enable us to endure the trials and the tragedies that come our way in this life. We can praise God even in the difficulties that we face because we have this guarantee that we will receive all that He's promised for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. 
Perhaps John, writing in Revelation 21, verse 4, gives us the best description of our inheritance. You know the promise well. It's comforted you many times, even right here at this moment as we read this verse in just a second. It gives you strength and joy and hope. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be, shall, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Heavenly treasure is eternal. But earthly treasure, regardless of how much we accumulate, is temporary. We all know we're not taking anything with us when we die, right? I mean, when rich folks die, no matter how much money they have they don't just leave behind a lot of money they leave behind all their money randy alcorn writes when jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth it's not just because wealth might be lost it's because wealth will always be lost either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die no exceptions realizing its value is temporary should radically affect our investment strategy. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong, it's just plain stupid. The most powerful convicting statement Jesus makes about treasures found in verse 21, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, where we invest our treasure will determine where we set our love, our admiration, our adoration. It's how we... It's how we can find out that to which we're truly devoted. Someone has said it's not so much that our treasure follows our hearts as it is that our hearts follow our treasure. In other words, what we invest in is that which we are dedicated to. Spurgeon writes, You must keep all earthly treasures out of your heart and let Christ be your treasure. Let Him have your heart. Beloved, whatever we focus on dictates our actions. When we focus on earthly success and wealth, we will spend our energy on those matters. When we focus on the kingdom, His will, His promises, our actions will reflect His priorities and His will. Our reward in heaven will last forever. Jesus says, beginning in verse 22, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So closely tied to our heart attitude is the focus of our vision. Vision, of course, is made possible for our eyes. The eyes let light come in. They serve as the, as the lamp or the lens of the body. And if they're working correctly, we can see very clearly. But if your eyes are bad your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, without clarity of vision, we walk around in the dark. The word that's rendered good or clear in some translations is also rendered single in the King James Version. Thought being that, that we should have a single-minded commitment to the Father. But an eye that's bad is one that's lost its focus and it's representative of a heart that's divided in its loyalty. I mean, you get it, don't you? If our focus is not on Jesus Christ... If He's not supreme Lord of our lives, we can, we can have no claim to any depth of spiritual understanding. The light we say we have is not light at all, but darkness. The wisdom that we live by 
is defective and unreliable. The truth we claim to be accurate is at best twisted and at worst case totally false, bending to man's selfish desires rather than pointing to the will of God. Jesus says, and if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. I used to think I knew what darkness is until I did a little spelunking while on a mission trip in Mexico a few years ago. I was enjoying it, but I am crazy claustrophobic, in case you need to know. I was enjoying it, though, until a young team member, a girl by the name of Rose, borrowed my flashlight. I thought she was going to look at something and hand it right back to me, but I turned her right around and she was gone. <laughs> Leaving me in a darkness like I didn't know existed. I mean, I literally could not see my hand in front of my face. I remember trying to stumble around in the darkness, but the ground was covered with these softball-sized rocks and, and basketball-sized boulders interspersed among pools of water. So I was forced to just stand there and wait until someone came around with a light. The eye that is full of darkness is like that. The eye that's bad does not merely have a light that's faint or flickering. No, light is totally absent. The eye that is bad is blind to the things of God, leaving that person stumbling about in an endless sea of darkness, searching in vain for purpose and truth and hope and light for all that truly matters in life. Church family, how misled we are if we believe we can discern the truth of God apart from surrendering to the will of God. What we need is a clear focus, a clear vision of Jesus Christ as our Lord. And of course, in our text, it relates directly to the way we look at and use our money. That's the context of Jesus' teaching here in this passage. Beloved, listen to this. If Jesus is not our sovereign Lord over money and possessions, He is not our sovereign Lord at all. If our focus is on the Lord, if we're committed and passionate about His kingdom work, then we will use what He has placed in our hands for His glory and for His kingdom. But if our focus is on ourselves, then we're destined to become nothing more than covetous, materialistic, pleasure-seekers seeking our own glory. Tolstoy said, the antagonism between life and conscience may be removed in two ways by a change of life or by a change of conscience. Look what I fear many believers have done is adjust their consciences rather than their lives. We're so good at rationalizing. Experts, most of us. I mean, what else can explain how so many of us can live in relative luxury while others whom we could help if we just chose to are hungry or are marginalized because of abuse or mental health issues or addiction or divorce or maybe not suffering from any of those things but seem simply bent on rushing headlong into hell. Which God will you serve? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
So not only must we eliminate confusion and misunderstanding about our treasure and about our focus, but we, we must also be clear about our God. We simply cannot serve two masters. That word translated masters here refers to a slave owner who has complete control over his slaves. So when Jesus referred to a master, he was referring to one who has absolute authority over our lives. Whomever or whatever is in control is our master. During a speaking engagement in Utah, Mark Twain got into a disagreement with a Mormon on the topic of polygamy. The Mormon boldly asked Twain, can you find a single verse in the Bible that forbids polygamy? Certainly, Twain replied, no man can serve two masters. <laughs> Certainly not what Jesus is talking about here. So Jesus puts before us a choice. Who is our God? Because our God is whatever or whomever we serve. The most important thing in your life, that is your God. If money is the most important thing, then money is your God. If a person is the most important thing, that person is your God. If your hobby is the most important thing, that hobby is your God. Whatever elicits your supreme interest, that is your God. Let me ask you, beloved, who or what is your God? Is it the creator of heaven and earth, the king of glory, the living and true God, our strong deliverer, the rock of our salvation, the, gate, the great king above all gods, or something or someone else? Paul, in writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 6, says that no one is free. Everyone is a slave to something or someone. Everyone is offering themselves to someone, everyone lives for something. We all offer ourselves as sacrifices on some altar. We are all serving some cause, some bottom line, and that something becomes our master and we become its slave. Christian author and public speaker Becky Pippert writes Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Beloved, we serve whatever we seek as our highest good, whether it's money or possessions or power or something or someone. So no one truly is in control of his or her life. We are controlled by whatever or whomever we have decided we serve. Whether we call ourselves religious or not, we all have a God. So who is our God? Is He the God of the Bible or money or something else? We're all worshipers. Do we serve and worship and find joy in the Lord Jesus Christ or in money and possessions or something else? Jesus clearly tells us that it's not possible to serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And since he's talking about treasure in these verses, he declares you cannot serve both God and money. Money here being representative of all of our possessions and earthly treasures. So the clear choice, the clear choice is those earthly things that we value and love so much or God. You can serve one or the other, but not both. So then it boils down to where the focus, the passion of our heart lies. 
no matter what it looks like on the outside, loving money, loving anything more than God, does damage on the inside. Soul damage. If it persists, we will be left in a desert, blind and alienated from the Father, dry and dusty in our spiritual life, wondering perhaps what's the point of all this anyway. But there's a better way because godliness plus contentment really is great gain. Let me ask you this morning, are you convinced? This is a struggle for you. Do you want to try a different direction than one you've been traveling? I mean, away from the desert, back to the living water that will never leave you dry, never leave you thirsty. I want to share with you three choices as we close that will help us get in line with what the Word teaches about money and help us trade a covetous attitude for a genuine contentment, genuine, biblical, lasting contentment with what God has provided for us. The first is this, set proper priorities. Set proper priorities. Set a goal to, to develop a mindset that more really does not equal better off. Except that you would not be happier with more stuff or more money. Beloved, you have been raised with Christ, therefore set your mind on things that are above. Where Christ is, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So set proper priorities and then speak truth to yourself. Now you know how important I believe it is that we continually speak the right things, the truth to ourselves. We need to try and learn to say to ourselves, I have enough. Try that one time. Say, I have enough. In our homes, in our lives, these words, I have enough, can serve to remind us where our priorities should be. We need to push back from the table of materialism and say, I have enough. When we do get in a little discretionary income, instead of wondering what we can go out and purchase to make ourselves happy, we need to fight back against that attitude and say to ourselves, I have enough. And pray instead, Lord, how can I use this for your glory? I know this is counterculture and perhaps counterintuitive for the Christian, excuse me, for the non-Christian it is for sure. But this mindset of I have enough puts us in a position where we can focus on what really matters. That which we can never get enough of. As the psalmist says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Beloved, being contented, trusting in His provision, I suggest to you is a lot like the trust we experience at conversion. Say something like, you know, I'm not sure exactly, Father, how this works, if it'll change my life at all, but I know my way's not working, so if you're real, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sins. I'm tired of doing things my way. I want to try to do things your way. I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's the step of faith we took when the Holy Spirit opened our blind eyes and made us who were once dead alive, and we came to faith in Christ. I'm challenging you this morning to take another step of faith and say, I have enough. Say it again, I have enough. 
What a change in our attitude toward possessions and money this would make. A positive, biblical, God-glorifying change in the life of our church and our homes and our families. Set proper priorities. Speak truth to yourselves. And then shift the focus of your lifestyle. Psalm 62, verse 10 says, If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Very similar to the first choice here. We all need to accept the challenge to choose a lifestyle. Don't let your income dictate your lifestyle. Choose a comfortable level of living that you need and don't compromise that with more spending once your income begins to increase. Because if you don't choose a lifestyle, beloved, I guarantee you this culture will choose a lifestyle for you. And it'll be a lifestyle of living beyond your means. We need to be countercultural here. We need to be radical here. We need to let our lifestyle be biblically based, eternally focused, other-centered, and let enough be enough. So where's your heart? Whom do you serve? Is your heart toward God? Is your focus upon Him? Is your master money? Or the Lord Jesus Christ. Money talks. What does it say about you? Do you want the world and stuff to lose its appeal to you? I'm going to tell you how this morning. Crowd out worldliness by filling your affections with the cross of Jesus Christ. Crucify the world as dead and undesirable and dwell on the love of our Savior. Resist the lure of the world by gazing at the wondrous cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world, Paul writes, has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me close with this quote from Spurgeon. It's rather long, but stay with me. It's rather good. Spurgeon wrote these words, The best preaching is we preach Christ crucified. The best living is we are crucified with Christ. The best man is a crucified man. The best style is a crucified style. May we drop into it. The more we live beholding our Lord's unutterable griefs and understanding how He has fully put away our sin, the more holiness we shall produce. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, where we can view heaven and earth and hell all moved by His wondrous passion, the more noble will our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Get you close to Christ and carry the remembrance of Him about you from day to day, and you will do right royal deeds. Come, let us slay sin, for Christ was slain. Come, let us arise, let us bury our pride, for Christ was buried. Come, let us rise to newness of life, for Christ has risen. Let us be united with our crucified Lord in His one great, in this one great object. Let us live and die with Him. Then every action of our lives will be very beautiful. Spurgeon urges us to dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. And if we do this, believer the things of this world will indeed go strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we are thankful for our chance to be in your word this morning once again. To have your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word. Father, we confess that there are times we have struggled, perhaps even right now, with not being satisfied with what you have given us, but wanting more. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on your Son, to trust in your provision, to fight back the culture and the world and our sinful nature that tells us more is better. Help us to be generous, Father, in giving of our time and our talents, and yes, our money too. Father, we want to serve you and you alone. We want to love you and be devoted to you and you alone. Work in our lives, Father, with grace and power and mercy to help us do just that. In Jesus' name we pray.